Stop it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Kids are dismissed. I have to tell you, uh, my initial reaction to being told that I was going to be speaking this morning, and I say told because that's exactly how it went down. Uh, so my initial reaction was, I think my words were at staff retreat, that's a dumb idea. And because of how emotionally challenging this was going to be, and yeah, as you can tell, the sympathy and the compassion were deep, uh, so deep you couldn't see it. It was uh, way down in there. Um, but just to give some explanation and context for this, for those of you who are a part of Lakeview, you understand what's going on here. We've been here. We feel like God is calling us to go to Birmingham, and that is, is bittersweet and, and painful and something that we've since God giving us faith for, but at the same time there have been strong emotions because of how connected we've been here by God's grace. So for those of you who aren't a part of Lakeview and, and you're visiting, let me just give you some quick context. Um, I grew up here. It's my hometown. Uh, bought the house that my parents built when I was five years old, so we're living there. We have the big room now with the bathroom in the back, which is nice. But it's the house. It's the same house, the same neighbors next door whose turtle used to come underneath our fence and show up in our yard. And we were talking with a next-door neighbor about that just yesterday. Um, Grew up going to Harold Keller and Adams and Grace King fighting Irish and the whole thing. You know, had, had beignets on the eighth day after my birth and just <laughs> strongly connected here. My dad planted a church just three blocks from here. Um, and, and Paula has roots here, just about an hour out, outside of the city here. She grew up in a little slice of heaven called Bell Rose, Louisiana. And her folks have been a great part of our lives and closely connected with our family. I just, I could put it this way. I don't get in-law jokes. I don't, I laugh just to be polite because I know some of you are going through that. But I don't know what you're talking about. That's not our experience. So we are, we are connected here. And we've been in this church for 12 years and have been knitted to this body, loved on by this body. And so, so that will... Uh, I trust give some explanation to the emotions that are going to likely be present as we proceed this morning. We're grateful to God. And, and beyond that, for, for non-Lakeview people, um, this is a crying church. It, it's what we do here. Um, and so, you know, we, we cry when people leave. We cry when we're happy and grateful. Um, we, we know how to, this is our love language. And so... Um, so that's what we do. So this morning, there may be some of that, but what I would like to do is, is look at God's word, celebrate God's word with you from Psalms chapter 48. My first sermon at Lakeview was from the Psalms some 10 years ago. And the role that I've gotten to play here um, it's been a privilege, and I think that it is perhaps best captured by the book of Psalms, because the book of Psalms is a self-revealing God, 
and his people responding in song. So it's full of the word, the scripture. It's the longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, and it's a hymnal right in the middle of the Bible. And so I think it captures the essence of what I've been called to do and have been privileged to do since coming here. And I chose this text, just read through many psalms early this week, and I chose this text because as soon as I began reading it devotionally, all kinds of concrete illustrations, I was resonating with this chapter in so many ways, and I was thinking of how I've experienced this psalm here. So in other words, I didn't have to choose between preaching a message and sharing personal thoughts about our experience here. Both could be done from a passage. So I want to read Psalm 48 before we get started. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels. That you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. I love the church. I I love Sunday mornings. And this might be a good time to make a confession that I've been kind of holding as a secret, though it's, it's not a secret to some No one wonders what Keith's opinion of Facebook is in this church (laughs) or social media in general. Um, And my confession is that I I not only Facebook, uh, but I have been tweeting. (laughs) I I know it's hard. I've been tweeting on something called Twitter. And and I've been struggling with tweeting for several months now. It's been something I've been actively doing, one of the things, those of you who tweet, I think there are maybe three or four of us here who, who tweet, uh, actually I'm leaving to get away from church discipline because I'm afraid it's coming for me. <laughs> those of you who, who tweet, you know that one of the things you do to establish a Twitter account is you have to write this little blurb, a brief blurb that kind of captures identity or things that mark you, and so you have to come up with something short, and what I ended up coming up with was, it's not very clever or Innovative, it's very simply, Christian husband, father, pastor, music guy, lover of the gospel, the scriptures, Sunday mornings, good books, soulful music. That's it. And initially, I wrote up a few different renditions of that, and 
I always ended up with certain basics, you know, roles in life, that I'm a Christian, my faith, and, um, you know, love for the gospel, love for God's word. But I ended up not being able to run away from saying something about Sunday morning. That was several months ago because I love Sunday morning. And, and I believe in the gathering of the church. I believe in the church. I believe God has a mission through the church, and that mission has eternal significance to it. And God is proclaiming his name, his glory to all nations through the church. And there is a power in the revelation of God to the church and through the church to the nations that that I am convinced of, convicted by, and lit up by, and, and I'm not alone. There are people throughout this room who have been captured by that same passion. There's a universal expression to the church which, is, which encompasses all believers in all of history and in all places in the world who have turned from sin to Christ in faith. And in the Old Testament, which is where we are in Psalm 48, in the Old Testament, that group of people called by God to God was Israel. But from the very beginning, when God called Abraham, it wasn't supposed to be only Israel. The blessing of Abraham was to go from Israel to all the nations of the earth so that when we come over into the New Testament pages, we find that God's people in the New Covenant are Jews and Gentiles. To use words from the Apostle Paul, we Gentiles have been grafted into the covenant that God made with Abraham, and this is glorious. This is why we find guys like the Philippian jailer in the New Testament worshiping with God's people. We find an Ethiopian eunuch converted and coming into the kingdom of God. And many of us who are not by nature and genealogy linked up to Abraham, but we are nonetheless children of God making up the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. But it also has a local expression. So we're gathered as a local expression of God's global cosmic church, his people that he's brought in. Here at 5885 Fleur de Lis, we worship God in spirit and in truth. My siblings, my brother and sister and their families are doing the same thing in Austin, Texas. There's a church called the Church of Brook Hills in Birmingham right now worshiping the same God, locally expressing. There are churches all over the world today worshiping the great God who is Lord over the church. And God stands over each of these assemblies. And he stands over them not simply with respect to his omnipresence, not in the same way that he's standing over the Swiss Alps. He stands over each of these gatherings all across the world in a unique way. He stands over these assemblies inclined, eager to bless his people, to manifest his goodness, to save the lost, to comfort, to heal, to restore, to change our lives. This is what God does, and he does it when we gather So I believe in the local church. And these are statements about the power and presence of God among his gathered people. And they have everything to do with what we're reading in Psalm 48. Matter of fact, there's one sense in which Psalm 48 would be the Old Testament's way of saying, I believe in the church. And I believe in the God who comes near to his gathered people. The audience that originally heard these words from this psalm 
wrestled continually with questions like, how do we know that we are favored by God? How do we know that we are God's special people? How do we see that God loves us? And they're looking at those questions in light of other realities. The reality of life in a fallen world. The reality of people like the Philistines. People like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Moabites and the Ammonites and many others. They're wrestling with those realities. And and the reality that we live in even to this day is that the church in the eyes of the world is seen as weak and enfeebled. And God comes to his people in Psalm 48 and says, don't measure the success of the church and my love for my church with the measuring rod of the world. Take off the glasses of natural analysis and listen to what I say about my church. Listen to what I say about my love for my people. And the first point I think that God gives to us that we discover here in Psalm 48 is God, as an expression of his love for his people, God reveals himself to his people. The first phrase here in verse 1, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, I would suspect is the verse that finds itself into more songs than any other verse maybe in all of contemporary praise and worship music. That phrase finds itself into many, many songs. But it doesn't merely say great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. It says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. But what does that mean? We know that it doesn't mean that God's glory is something that's localized. That, yeah, God's glory, to, you know, he's glorious and he's wonderful and he's beautiful to us, but we're about the only ones who have any appreciation for, in, and, and God only displays glory in settings where people who believe in him gather. No, God's glory goes throughout the world. The Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. So there, we know that one of the hymns that perhaps some of us grew up singing is, This is my Father's world, and to my listening ear all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. And that's perfectly true. It's just not the point of Psalm 48. Psalm 48 says something much deeper than that God displays his glory in the created order. Psalm 48 says that there's something unique that happens when God's people gather and glory goes on display and greatness is seen and felt in the hearts of his people. You know, in the time of the Old Testament, it says here, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation is the joy of of all the earth. Jerusalem was the city of David. It was the city of God. It was surrounded by three valleys. It was beautiful in elevation. It was quite literally a city set on a hill. But in scripture, when the Bible talks about Mount Zion, it's not talking about a heap of dirt in Palestine. It's talking about something far deeper. It's talking about What God does, how God displays his character, his attributes, his glory when his people assemble in his name. That's Mount Zion. We grew up singing, we're marching to Zion. We're marching to Zion. 
Beautiful, beautiful Zion, we're marching onward to Zion, that beautiful city of God. I can hear my mom playing it. We grew up singing that song. But one of the things I never stopped to say, why are we marching to Zion? What what is it about this place that's so great that it's worth us singing about marching there? And I think that marching to Zion has less to do with the topography of Israel and more to do with the one who's Lord over Zion, with the one who resides over his people, the one who manifests his glory to his people. That's why we're marching there, because that's where God reveals his greatness. Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the gathering at Mount Zion. And this passage is not talking about God's people scattered over all the earth. It's talking about God's people in the gathering, the people as they assemble to worship. It says later on in verse 9, it's talking about God's people in the assembly, in the midst of the temple. Reflecting on God's character as they are gathered together. But look at what God does when his people gather. It actually tells us in the very next verse something about the glory of Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Here's what happens there. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. You know that God's normal way of revealing himself to people is not by sending angels to each person individually and saying, sit down, let me tell you something about the glory of God. God primarily, his normal way, is to proclaim his glory through his people. To gather his people, there to his people he proclaims his glory. And from that gathering he sends his people to proclaim to everyone around them, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So he gathers a people to himself He reveals his glory. That awakens worship and wonder and and joy. And, And you see this, this pattern throughout the Bible of revelation and response. God reveals himself to his people. They worship in response. You see it, right? When, when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and what does God say for Moses to tell Pharaoh? Let my people go that, this is the purpose of the Exodus, let my people go that they may go out and worship me. And so what happens? It's no surprise. The people come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea stands up and gets out of the way. The people march through it. Judgment is looming on both sides, and God protects his people from the judgment that would destroy them. They pass through on the other side and are saved by the mercy of God, and then their enemies come chasing after them, and the waters of judgment fall. And in that one act, both the wicked are consumed, and God's people are safe. And what do they do on the beach side of the other side of the Red Sea? Miriam grabs a tambourine, and it's on. They begin to sing, to shout, to celebrate. What are they doing? They're responding to the saving power of God. It's what God's people have always done from the very beginning and down to this very day. God's people see glory. They see a Savior who is awesome, and what we do is automatic. We can't not worship when we've seen the saving power of our God. 
God loves to make himself known to us again and again as we gather to sing, to pray, to hear his word preached. And this has been my life story. I have experienced this all my life growing up in the church. If you ask me the question, how do you know God? In one sense, obviously, my answer would be I have faithful parents who love the Lord and told me about him. In another sense, and I would quickly add, I know God because my parents brought me to church every Sunday. Every Sunday. Bible underneath my arm, all three ducks in a row, Bibles underneath our arms, walking into the church, turning to the verse that we're supposed to turn to, reading the verse that we're supposed to read. It was King James Version back then. All these versions have been drawn out and stuff, but I I was even bringing my King James Bible back to church in the day, and we would open it together and read, and then I would sit next to Sister Melinda Taylor, and we would sing alto on every song in the worship set until it was through, and that was my experience growing up, and Honey Cotterman taught me in Sunday school. She literally taught me how to tie my shoes, and she taught me the Lord's Prayer, and what was happening in all that? Psalm 48 was happening in all of that. God in the citadels among his gathered people was revealing his glory. And he does it every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And I think this is an underappreciated aspect of the Christian life in our day. There's a sense in which you might wonder, how do I know God? How do I experience deep running joy, despite trials, deep running joy that's unshakable, how do I realize my purpose in life, the purpose for which I was created? And the surprising answer would be, show up here next week and the week after. Schedule life around this gathering. Make it unthinkable that you would not show up for the Sunday gathering because in the citadels, God makes himself known. In the gathering of the people, God proclaims his glory. And there are people throughout this room, and it would be completely alien for me to even think to ask them the question. So I'll see you next Sunday, right? Doesn't even occur to me. Mr. Rufus Rufus and Ms. Fage are going to be here next Sunday unless they go to glory. The Pratts are going to be here next Sunday. The e-buyers are going to be here next Sunday. It's automatic. It's built in. It's preset because I think there's a very real sense in which God's schedule is preset. On Sunday morning, he's coming to church. (laughs) On Sunday morning, God is coming to the gathering and he's coming with gifts in his arms. He's coming with self-revealing glory to show to us so that we might worship him, be grounded and stabilized in our lives. God reveals himself to his people. That's point number one. Secondly, God fights to protect his people. You know, you go to verse four. It says, behold, the kings assembled. They came together. As soon as they saw it, they're astounded. They're in panic. They, they took flight. So it's talking about pagan kings, scared, running away. It's talking about ships being destroyed. In a sense, it almost seems like a bumpy transition from the verses that came before that were talking about God revealing his glory to the church that's gathered and all that. But we know it's not disconnected from the verse that comes before because the very first word of the fourth verse tells us. The first word is the word for. 
So God reveals himself in the citadels and makes himself known as a fortress for, behold, the king's assembled. These two things are linked. God, in other words, wants to keep telling us something about his unique love for his people, his intention toward his gathered people. He, in other words, he's saying in verse 4 through 8, I am not only the Lord over my people, I am the Lord over all people. Psalm 24 tells us that. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. He is Lord over all all people. He is sovereign and he governs all of history in such a way as to ensure that his people will be safe. And how do we find his people in verse 8? Safe. God will establish them forever. Friends, we don't serve a weak and vulnerable God. Yes, in the incarnation, Jesus was poor and lowly and rejected and despised by many, he was subjected to human frailty, but he is not that way now. He rose on the third day. He was coronated king of the universe. He's king over all the kings. He's lord over all the lords. He is preeminent. He is head over the church. He sits on a throne that cannot, indeed, will not ever be toppled. That's the Christ who is installed on the throne of heaven, and he reigns over this assembly. He is the one who is with us, gathered in our midst, revealing his glory so that we might know we're safe. We're okay. Look at the king on his throne. And we see pagan kings scattering and running away from him because this is the king over all the kings. And the Lord over all the lords. So when we see these pagan kings assembling together and conspiring against God's people in the Old Testament... In Psalm 48, verse 4, we see the same thing happening in Psalm 2, verse 2. Kings are assembling to overthrow the anointed one. We see the same thing at the end of history in Revelation 17, verse 13. Kings are assembling to topple the kingdom of God. And when we see those kinds of things conspiring together, the end of that story is not a nail-biter. I love how, matter of fact, Revelation 13, 14 is... Sorry, Revelation 17, 14 is after Revelation 17, 13. Here's what verse 14 says. They, those kings that have conspired, will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. (laughs) It's not overstated. It's just a matter of fact. The Lamb will conquer them. And then it even gives an explanation of why it's so matter of fact. For, for he is Lord of lords. (laughs) And he is King of kings. And what I also love about Revelation 17 is it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say he will conquer them because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings, period. The, the lens widens. It backs out, and you see someone else standing next to the triumphant Lord, the triumphant Jesus. And guess who that is? Us. <laughs> we get caught up in the triumph of the King of Kings. It says... For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and the angle widens, and those with him are called chosen and faithful. In a similar way, when we're in Psalm 48, you see this outbreak, noise, pandemonium, chaos. Kings are running for their lives. Warships are shattered on the beach, and the city of God is established safe and sound. 
Why? Because God reveals himself to his people as a fortress. Now, bear in mind, this is sobering for those of us who reject the Lord. He is a fortress to those who turn from sin and put their faith in Jesus. If you turn from sin and you put your faith and trust in Jesus alone, by faith alone, he becomes your fortress, your shelter. If, on the other hand, you say, I will live my life my own way, forget God, I don't need him, you will find yourself not looking like the situated people in verse 8, but like the kings running for their lives in verses 6 and 7. You'll be running away from the king of kings, trying to find refuge in the ships of self-justification only to find out that they're shattered on the rocks and there's no hope except in Christ alone. So this verse has everything to do with becoming one of God's people by faith. In our sinful condition, God's presence is a fearful thing because he's holy. But if we turn and trust in what Christ has done on the cross for our forgiveness. This is amazing. This is the gospel. The one whom we ought to fear becomes to us a fortress. Now, what's the only thing that could motivate a holy God to become a fortress to sinful people? And I think that's what comes up next in our text. The attribute of the steadfast love of the Lord which is the central theme of the worship gatherings of God's church throughout history. If you back up and you go to 2 Chronicles and you read through the the story that's unfolding there and you come to chapter 5 and you're coming into a, a critical moment in Israel's history, Solomon gets to build the temple, this glorious temple in which God's people will worship him and the temple is, stands completed in chapter 5. And the ark is set down in the temple. And if you listen to the pages of the Bible, you will hear some of the loudest outbursts of worship in the entire Old Testament come straight out of Second Chronicles 5. And he paints this picture of what's going on. All the Levitical singers are there. Asaph is there. Heman is there. Jeduthun is there 120 priests they all have trumpets in their hands there are lyres harps it's crazy it's loud it's raucous it says that there were more sheep and oxen sacrificed to the lord than could be numbered this is an explosive worship service and when verse 13 tells us and gives us just a snapshot of what's the thematic center of that explosive worship service in the old testament Guess what the theme is? Very briefly, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Read Psalm 106, read Psalm 107, both of those psalms. They're poetic retellings of the whole story of the Old Testament, of God's relationship with his Old Testament people, the salient moments of how that unfolded. And when you read those poetic historical recountings of God's people in the Old Testament, they both begin with the same verse at the beginning. The same heading is over those poetic accounts. And it says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures 
forever. The worship service that erupted at the base of Solomon's temple took place 3,000 years ago, and the thematic center of the steadfast love of God has been central to the praise of God's people ever since, to this very, to this very day. And, and I would say one of the most transformative experiences in our lives as we've been a part of this church for 12 years is singing these songs, hearing these sermons about this same steadfast, loving God. Week after week, Sunday after Sunday, reminding ourselves, being reminded, proclaiming the truth, knowing we are enduring trials. Yes, sin entangles us. Yes, life is hard and the curse runs fast and furious and I'm tasting it in many different areas of my life. But I'm gonna say it again, I'm gonna say it again, and again and again until it breaks in on me that the steadfast love of God endures forever. God's love can hold me despite all this. We have to have this as central in our conviction in what we hold as important for our gatherings. God goes on display as a God who protects us with his steadfast love. Because we haven't come together to boast about our steadfast love for God. I don't want to sing songs about my steadfast love. That's a depressing song. Because <laughs> I, know, I know my thoughts. I know the pride. I know the jealousy, the bitterness. I know the unforgiveness. I see that stuff. I feel it. It's in the cauldron of my heart churning around in there. I don't want to sing songs about my steadfast love. I need something else. I need a rock underneath my feet. And this is that rock. It's the rock of the gospel that is the center of God's gathered people. What lifts my head, what makes me want to dance is that I have a God who has shown me steadfast love. It is God's love, if you think about it, that makes him a fortress. If God possessed his other attributes of holiness and righteousness and purity, but he didn't possess his attribute of love, he would be anything but a fortress. And the last place you would want to run to be safe would be into the arms of a holy God. It is God's love, his steadfast love that makes him safe for us so that we can sing, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. We can hide in him because he's a God of steadfast love. And this Gospel is the heart of every gathering. And when we treasure it, when we say as Psalm 48, 9, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. This is our meditation Sunday after Sunday. When this message catches us, it creates two effects that unfold in the next two verses. Verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the end of the earth. It's the first effect of the gospel going deep in the heart of the steadfast love of God amazing his people, is that God's praise goes to the end of the earth. Charles Spurgeon called the preaching of the gospel the marvelous magnet. And the text that he was preaching from that given morning was when Jesus said, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. The power of Christ's cross changes us. Seeing the gospel changes us. The second result 
of the preaching of God's steadfast love, verse 11, is our joy. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So God, in verse 10, gets the glory, and God, in verse 11, gives us the joy. And I can't think of a better six-word summary of heaven itself. He gets the glory. We get joy. He gets glory day after day for 10,000 years and 10,000 years, and we get joy, unspeakable, full of glory at your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. And as Eric was praying this morning, we get a foretaste of that every time we gather and reflect on the steadfast love of God in the midst of his people. And finally, consider and proclaim God's faithfulness to the next generation. I love the imagery that this psalm ends with because the the psalmist, having reflected on the way in which God protects his people, fights for his people, guards them, his steadfast love for his people now begins to point to physical, concrete demonstrations of God's faithfulness to them. It says, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. You can almost picture the psalmist going over and slapping his hand on Jerusalem's wall and saying, walk around the city and count the towers. Count the many concrete, measurable ways in which I have been faithful to you, in which my steadfast love has been seen in your life and your experience. We don't have towers here at Lakeview. I mean, we've got Jeremy Maltz on and a couple other guys who are big dudes, but we, we don't have the exact equivalent of what they were doing there. But may we never rob God of the honor he gets when we think concretely about his blessings on his people in our lives as a church, in our lives as Christians, as families, singles that make up this church. We came here 12 years ago Hunter was about to turn two. We joined the DeSherry Covenant Group, and we were immediately pulled into the life of this church in wonderful ways. And on Hunter's second birthday, uh, we we found ourselves in the emergency room, needing to have exploratory surgery on his finger. We and they didn't know what it was going to be, and the doctors were using phrases like possible tumor and words like amputation, and we have one child and no experience, and we can count towers. Peter and Keith showed up right there, and I'm trying to hold back tears. I know Manly's Man competition's coming up. I'm trying to hold it together. (laughs) These guys came into the room. They grabbed us. They hugged us. They prayed for us. These are towers. When we count the towers of our experience here, they they are beyond numbering and they start early. God has been good to us. We had Will in 2001, Ellie in 2004, and friends throughout this church have loved on us as a family, have invested in our kids, have cared for our kids, have taken them 
out places, have fun, made memories with them. Our kids are invited out almost every Sunday somewhere. They're going somewhere. Just, we just try to keep track and make sure we don't leave them here because we're assuming they're going somewhere, which has happened. <laughs> it's not one of the towers they'll be counting years to come. Yeah, remember, Dad, when you forgot us? I, uh, you know, both of us, really as a whole family, we have, we've experienced genuine friendship. We've offended people. We've, we've been offended. We've been forgiven. We have forgiven. We've experienced what, what forbearance really tastes like and the joy of it and the, the gratification of it. The joy of reconciliation after there's a difference that's been expressed. That's that's real life. Real genuine fellowship. Not so surfacey, kind of shoot the breeze and talk shop. Genuine fellowship. What's going on? What was that reaction about? I endured the hardship of being picked after Paula was for a softball tournament at the family retreat. (laughs) A.J. DeSherry has been rubbing that in for years. <laughs> and many things have happened like that, which I think have made me the humble man that stands before you today. <laughs> many, many similar situations. Nick and Stephanie Francis are my first wedding. I was scared to death as she came down the aisle. Just experiences that are unique. We have, talk about concrete, we have eye wrinkles from the joy of relationships here, from just hanging out with wacko Lakeview people like <laughs> AJ to Sherry. <laughs> I, I really, I could name many. Nick Missios, Phil Widener, Sammy Byer, Randy and Mandy, the crew lacks, Evan and Rebecca. We've laughed ourselves to tears. Matter of fact, we were doing it last night at the Pell's house, just laughing until we were crying enjoying life, enjoying God's grace. We have lifelong friendships. It's one of the towers that we're counting here. When I number the towers, I think of times in which we've been in small groups or times of praying together as a staff. That's been one of the sweetest things, staff prayer in this room and the one before it. Just walking around, asking God, Be with us. Use us. Touch the people. Bless the church. Those have been seminaries for me. Learning from men who I've learned a tremendous amount from. Their example, their love for this church. It's been life-changing. I think of Friday mornings with Theoform guys talking about how glorious God is. Choking back tears as we read Ferguson and Stott and Machen and others. I think of men's retreats where God came, chased me into the woods. Not me only, but other men where God came down and met with us and did awesome things. It's a tower that we count. I think of women who have surrounded my wife, befriended her. When Ellie was very, very ill in 2008, and uh, so many from the church were praying for us, 
sending cards. We had pictures all over the walls. There wasn't any wall space left. We'd put pictures on top of other pictures. Balloons throughout the room. We ate like kings. We had nurses coming from all quadrants of the children's hospital to get in on the action. It was just amazing <laughs> how blessed we were. The people, Miss Jean coming in with laundry, my laundry folded in the basket. Did you real, real friendship, real care and love? We, you know, we came in 2000. We had no idea what God was going to do. And to be honest, I think if we did know all that we would experience, we wouldn't have wanted to know. We couldn't have handled it. Things like trials. You just can't handle that, knowing it in advance. But you walk through it, and it becomes a citadel. It becomes a rampart, a tower where you can say, slap your hand on a concrete wall and say, God's been here. God came to Children's Hospital. He's come to 5101 Elmwood Parkway. And the great bulk of his grace has come to us through human hands, namely yours. Deeply grateful to my friends and the staff for 10 great years of laboring together in this church. You and your families have been mentors, and, and genuine friends. I could go on for hours because, to be honest, it's a long walk around the city of God's faithfulness that we've experienced in this chapter of our lives, and there are way too many towers to bring up in this sermon. Psalm 48 has one more thing to say to us. It's not enough just to count the blessings. Verse 13 says, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. It's not enough just to count the blessings we have to teach our sons and daughters, how to count them as well. And that might be our physical sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, spiritual sons and daughters, new people who are going to become believers this year. And in years to come, we grab them by the hand. We have the privilege of walking them around the city and saying, this is God. Look at how gracious he is. Look at how he meets with his people. He is our God forever. And I could say with absolute confidence to you as a church that you haven't finished counting the ramparts, the citadels, and the towers. God is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who loves his church. He keeps his church. He fights for his church. He reveals himself to his church, and he does so forever. He establishes his church, and he's going to keep doing that. God's writing a story of faithfulness to this local expression of believers in this church, and it's going to be a glorious story, as it has been. God is going to continue to show his favor. Yes, I'm prophesying. He's going to continue to show his favor, his love, his guidance. You know, this verse doesn't end by saying, God has guided us. 
God has shepherded us. The last word this verse leaves us with is, He will guide us forever. The God who is faithful, the God of steadfast love, never leaves His people. He's a God who walks with us. And so I don't have to live in the future to already give thanks for it because I know the Lord of Zion. And you know the Lord of Zion. You know the Lord of the church. This is our great God who is greatly to be praised. He has made us his people. He will establish and fight for his church so that he gets the glory and we get the joy. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. Pray that you would continue to make yourself known here as a fortress, a protector, a savior, and a faithful father who guides us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Revenge is sweet, isn't it? <laughs> oh. <clears throat> well, let me just tell you where I'm trying to go here. Uh, I want to I give thanks for a moment in a couple directions. Then I want us to gather Matt and Paula and their kids together and for us to pray for them, lay hands on them as the Bible gives us an example of, of doing and commend them to the work that the Lord has set before them. Um, and then afterwards, we have a reception time that we hope many of you will avail yourselves of the opportunity to be with them and to hug on them uh, for a few moments. We'll have lunch, and so you're welcome to take some time to do that. But let me, uh, let me highlight a couple of things here. And if you want to look in your scripture with me, you can do that, or you can just listen. First Timothy chapter 4, I think there's a couple of things I would want to extend our attention into by way of great gratitude, and Matt has really touched on a good bit of this. First Timothy chapter 4, Paul is encouraging and admonishing Timothy in the call in his life, verse 14. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which, is, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see 
your progress. Second Timothy chapter 1, a few years later, Paul would revisit those same thoughts again, bringing up these thoughts in verse 6 to Timothy. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know, both of these passages refer to something that's a bit of a moving target. There's a fanning into flame of something that was this, and then it became that. And there is an encouragement to Timothy of a progress that would be evident to all. You could actually watch progress being made in Timothy's life in his calling. And what was once a small flame, a pilot light, if you will, became a great flame. And, you know, that, that doesn't just happen. And so I want to show you, there's a, there's a picture here. Can you guys put this picture up here? Um, that's, <laughs> this is what you started with. <laughs> this, is, this is the beginning of a young Timothy's life set in the midst of the people of God. And a flame was fanned. And as Matt has said, it was, it was fanned by a church. Because by the time you, you get to some of these passages from the Apostle Paul, you know, they're in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And before Timothy became all that Timothy would be, there was an influence and an effect of his family. I'm so thankful that you mentioned your family today. Because you guys are where you are because of the foundations that your family has poured into both of your lives. And then at some point, family opens up opportunity for Sunday morning <laughs> for the church to be something in people's lives. And, you know, when you, when you read where Timothy came from back in Acts chapter 16, it says, Paul also came to Durban to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and so Timothy departs. But by the time Timothy is departing here into what would be identified as calling in his life, there's already been family at work and there's already been a church at work in Timothy's life. And so, you know, and this is just a lesson for us to pay attention to because we've had the, the gracious opportunity to watch God build a pastor. And so through these last 
12 years, you have been watching God build a pastor. But you're not just watching that like God had some mysterious pixie dust that he sprinkled upon a man. Uh, God built a pastor, as Matt just highlighted, through, through your lives. Through prayer that you have prayed for this man and his wife and his children. Through, through contributions you have made financially into the fact that he was able to set down his life and answer a call and full-time give his attention to something God had given him an ability to do and to grow in that because you faithfully have supported the church through openness and responding to ministry. You know, it's kind of a little bit, I don't want to say misleading when you find out that Timothy received these gifts at the apostles' hands. Well, you know, we, we kind of don't receive gifts that way. We receive gifts by the Holy Spirit sovereignly giving them to us. And I think we identify what God has done. And so, you know, how would we have ever really known what Matt's gifting was if, if it were not for the receptivity of the church to receive that gift? And so it's been your testimony of receiving the gift of God and the impact of God through his life that's allowed for there to be an identification. This man is called to serve and lead the church the way he does. And so my, my first point of gratitude is, is to family. Looking for Pete and Kathy. Where are they? Pete, don't be falling apart on me right now. I'm barely holding it together, okay? As for who family has been in their lives and then who church has been in their lives. And so as a result, uh, a man has been built. So thank you and thank you. And the other side of building is a man has been built, and then that man turned around and has been doing some building himself. You didn't put this in your message because maybe you didn't think this way. But there's, there's some citadels that you got to visit here that exist because you helped build them. And uh, I, I'm sure I would represent many uh, here who for me, I would be able to say, man, and Paula, thank you on three levels. Thank you personally for the, the friendship and the strengthening and support and contribution just as a friend to me and my wife and my children. Be many, many comments made through the years that would be associated with something you guys have done, said, or been to us. So I'm grateful on a personal level. I'm, I'm grateful on a level as a team for what you've built here and what you've built into us as part of the team. And, and maybe I'm a little bit unique in having front row seats for that one in a special way that uh, I, I will severely miss but I am overwhelmingly grateful for and then 
last, thank you. Thank you for what you built here that you were referring to has been such a blessing to you in your life. It's, it's partly because you helped build what's here. And, and I'm, I'm grateful on a number of fronts for that, apart from, apart from my wife and my children. There's nothing that's meant more to me than, than this church has. And so I'm indebted to you for your labor here in our midst. And so we want to give you some memorabilia, man, to take with you. Well, it's easy to remember that we actually built a building here, but I hope, I hope you got some kind of shelving that's kind of strong and sturdy where you're going because this is what this brick with a plaque on it says. It says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9 and 10, it says, Thank you for the careful way you have helped us build these past 12 years, your family at Lakeview. So, bro, can you put this on a shelf somewhere and for years and years be remembering that what you've left behind is, is citadels and buildings and the declaration of God's grace and goodness to this group of people here. I love you dearly. All right, well, before I call them up here and if I could ask the staff and their wives to come join me, um, if I could also ask the three men that helped make a decision about whether we really wanted this guy to come to New Orleans or not a number of years ago. Uh, Phil and Bill and Steve, if you could come join me as well in just a moment with your wives also. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. And so, this, this is the biblical pattern that we're practicing this morning. We're, we're just walking through God's story. God is building his church for the sake of his glorious name. And at some point, the Holy Spirit says, you know, Timothy, I've called, and this one I've set apart for this. And, and our job is just to walk with God in agreement with him and what he does. And so this morning, as we lay our hands on Matt and send him out and pray for the family, um, this is why. This is why we do this. So if I could get all the Masons to come on up here and all those guys that I've just asked, if you would come as well.
let's, let's bow our heads so we don't actually have to make eye contact. <laughs> you thought it was for prayer. You thought it was spiritual. No, it's just so we don't have to look at these guys while we're praying. Lord, some 12 years ago, maybe a little bit more than that, we would not have had any idea what you had planned for us. And yet, Lord, you did all along. Know the steps that you were ordaining. Know the stirring in the heart of a man and his wife in East Texas. Know the providential connections you had placed in our lives from years and years ago. Lord, you You've always had a plan. So, Lord, we're standing on this platform today with our minds flooded with memories. Lord, looking back on what you had already planned to do a long time ago. Lord, that's how your faithfulness operates. It's how your promises operate. Lord, in the future, going to see it come to pass. But right now we get to look back on it, Lord, and, and it's rich and we have been affected. And so, Lord, we stop. We just tell you thank you, Lord. Thank you for these years. Thank you for this family, Lord, and thank you what they have been to us. And Lord, from the beginning, we would not have wanted anything less than for your glory to be seen upon the earth. That's why we gather. That's why our feet are still here on this earth. So that your glory might be seen. And so, Lord, we, we understand there is an opportunity here for your glory to travel uniquely through this family into another location. And, and so, Lord, it's in one way, even though there's lots of tears and this is very difficult, Lord, it, it's also rather easy and rather a no-brainer. Because the reason why we're celebrating and remembering so fondly, Lord, to transfer that elsewhere and to see others benefit, Lord, we have great faith for that. So, Lord, thank you that you have, you have built a man and you have built his family for a day when you would send them in a new way and in an effective way to another place where you would plant a revelation of yourself into many, many, many lives. And so, Lord, that is what we pray for today. Lord, what you have been doing, continue to do. Lord, the, the flame that has been fanned here these last 12 years, Lord, let it continue to be fanned. Lord, it continue to grow and be more and more effective, more and more lives, Lord, coming under the effect of what we have received so richly from. Lord, let there be a multitude who, Lord, one day can stand in a place and say, you have been used by God to affect my life and I see God in his glory more clearly now. 
Lord, we pray for that. We pray that that is going to be the fruit. And Lord, I thank you that as a church, we get to participate in that. Lord, I thank you that what we have done together here, Lord, goes on into another place. And so, Lord, um, it's the way you build and it's the way you allow us to participate in building. So, Lord, this is, this is a day of tears, but it is a day of celebration. And, and so, Father, we honor your word today. Lord, I, I join with these leaders here and, and on a son and commending him to the work, Lord, that you have called him to. Holy Spirit, thank you that you've allowed us to participate at all. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to invite this man to be a part of this team for these many years. Lord, thank you for our partnership in the gospel for your glory. And Lord, we just transfer it now to a new address. Lord, our hearts go with them. And we commend them before you that your power would go with them, Lord. For unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So Lord, thank you that this has not been a vain labor here because you have been building through this man and his wife. Now, Lord, continue to build, Lord. May we see your fruit 30, 60, 100-fold spread throughout the land of Birmingham and beyond into many, many lives for the sake of your glorious name. In Jesus' name. We put together a little uh, walk down memory lane here to pass along to the Masons. You guys will, maybe they'll let you have a look at it, but we thought what we would do is, is let you guys walk a little bit through this. Since you probably won't get a chance to see it, we're going to pass this along to them. But we're going to let you guys see some of the last 12 years that we have had a chance to walk together and then when this song concludes and the slides conclude you are welcome to come join us for time of lunch and just to love on these guys uh, afterwards
stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen
Oh 